This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We appreciate you always tuning in to the opportune thought leadership here on the podcast as we continue to explore major technologies, trends, and offer actionable strategies for the larger oil and gas and energy industry. So before we continue, I want to make sure that you are getting all the opportune content that you need. So per usual, I'm going to point you all in a couple of directions. Make sure you head to our website, opportune.com. Again, that's opportune.com. For more information on what we do as a company, uh, more of our pieces of content, including episodes of the podcast, but also other pieces of uh, content, excuse me, like articles, videos, blogs, research, white papers, you name it. You can also find E2B on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations as well as notifications when we drop new episodes with the Opportune team. I also want to highlight before we keep going that today is our 50th episode. So virtual fireworks, virtual rounds of applause. It's pretty great that we've been uh, able to keep this podcast going for 50 whole conversations. So if you haven't tapped into our previous thought leadership, now would be the time. Get yourself uh, that uh, you know half centennial rewind of opportunes perspectives on uh, everything from technology strategies to weighing some of the largest geopolitical trends that are shaping the oil and gas sector. So on our episode today, we're going to be getting a Q1 2022 sort of rewind pulse check uh, on one of our industry's economic and operational dynamics. And one of the dynamics where opportune services and solutions are most used and most needed. And it's one of the areas where we have a consistent point of input on the efficiency and stability of the oil and gas industry. And that would be mergers and acquisitions. So we're chatting M and A's today. A report out of Global Data gave a Q1 2022 update on the four-year trend of M&A deal values and volume. And in a lot of ways, the most recent numbers reflect a consistent trend for the industry. So what we're wanting to do is, of course, break it all down today and map out some strategies for maneuvering M&As in the current economic environment. So joining us for Perspectives is Byrony Cohn. She's a principal at Opportune in the Upstream Transactional Advisory Group. Byrony, great to have you back on the podcast. How are you doing? Glad to be back on the 50th episode. That's awesome. Yes. It's uh, it's an exciting honor. Uh, I'll, for sure. I'll try to get you a, a virtual LinkedIn badge for it. Excellent. <laughs> and it's uh, you know it's been a minute since we've had you on the podcast as well, uh, maybe a, you know almost a year. Uh, give us the quick Byrony update, right? How has your work uh, panned out over the last year? Any you know big opportunities, big challenges? What's going on in Byrony Cone world? Yeah, I mean specifically in the upstream world, uh, which we're talking about today on the podcast, we've seen a lot more activity. Mergers, acquisitions, system implementations, what have it, best practice analysis. Um, pretty busy in the final quarter of last year, a little slower in the first quarter of this year, but Q2 has been a lot of fun. 
Well, in about uh, another handful of months, we should do a uh, you know a Q2 rewind as well. Hopefully, global data puts out some trends there. But let's go ahead and just jump into the meat of the conversation. So again, we're talking merger and acquisition activity. Uh, again, we're going to be using the global data Q1 2022 report. Uh, we'll reference it in the description of the podcast and in the corresponding article. So definitely folks listening, click through on that link and pull that up while you're listening uh, so you can get some visuals here. But the big highlight from the report, uh, or at least one of them, was that merger and acquisition activity in the oil and gas sector decreased in the first quarter this year compared to the same period last year. So Q1 2021, excuse me, had higher merger and acquisition uh, deal volume and values than Q1 of 2020. Two, uh, while merger and acquisition activity has slowed year over year, I'm curious, Byrony, what are you seeing in terms of the nature of transactions that are taking place compared to, you know, last year when the numbers were a little higher, and even you know three to five years ago, at least the extent of what the report covers. Yeah, and I think when you look at that report, it was something like 59 billion within Q1 of 2022, down 41 percent from the fourth quarter of last year. But upstream specifically, if you look at the percentage of deals within Q1, made up 35% of that almost $60 billion. Upstream commodity prices affect upstream deals incredibly, right? So the commodity environment that we're in right now, seen a little bit of a shift out of the Permian and into the shale. A lot of the, uh, I guess one of the biggest transactions in Q1 was a shale theme between the uh, Oasis and Whiting merger in the Williston Basin. And uh, I want to intersect a you know trend line that I feel is is pretty evident when you look at the visuals from that report. But even though it shows some quarter to quarter up and downs, and uh, you know last year saw some higher um, value and volume merger and acquisition deal numbers or quantities, uh, there does seem to be a pretty consistent downward trend in mergers and acquisitions. If you had to you know, extrapolate a slope and kind of draw from Q1 of 2018 to Q1 of 2022, it would be this downward sloping line, right? So it seems like overall, the long-term trend here is mergers and acquisitions are slowing. Do you agree there, right? What's your analysis of this decline? Maybe some of the reasons, some of the consequences? Give us your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe they're declining in in number, but I do think we're seeing a lot of really big deals still go through. And really, the theme has been consolidation, right? Mm. People are trying to make sure that their portfolio is focused in a particular area. And so when we do see transactions, it's typically related to that. And what are some of those specific areas where you're seeing a lot of activity still? Well, you've got um, Laredo and the Eagleford, um, EP Energy just sold a bunch of their Uinta assets, Exxon, the Barnett Shale, Centennial Colgate merger, which is the Permian. So it's, it's still everywhere, but we're seeing a lot more of it in the shale now. Gotcha. Is there a, an outsized reason for that or uh, you know, a, a strategic analysis there for our audience? I think a lot of people have started focusing on the Permian and because of the logistics and getting things out of the Permian have now shifted back to shale plays. Hmm. Do you believe that M&A activity is going to be continuously centered on the Permian Basin as it has been historically? Or are we seeing other basins that are just as active today that are you know, drawing in attention? 
Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot more. Um, you know, we're seeing Appalachia, we're seeing the Dakotas, the shale plays. So I think it's the interest beyond the Permian is a lot higher than it used to be. Gotcha. Now, what are some of the domino effects that come from the current size and scope of mergers and acquisitions in the Permian today, uh, specifically for you know, some of the other companies that might uh, feel the effects of those in the upstream side of the oil and gas market, right? I guess just kind of walk us through like why this dynamic of mergers and acquisitions matters to the market today. Specifically to the market, right? The upstream yeah. portion of the industry and not necessarily limited to the Permian. But, you know, right. a lot of it has to do with how the assets have historically been managed, um, where they store the data, and how quickly can they get it transitioned from buyer or from seller to buyer. Is it that there are issues there, right, um, with with the kind of size and scope of mergers and acquisitions today, uh, some of those operational data transfer and sort of logistical dynamics, are they impeding things or are they creating hiccups and challenges? No, but I think there's just, it's so many moving pieces when you start talking yeah. about both asset and entity integrations, mergers or straight asset acquisitions. It's a lot of moving pieces across a lot of different areas within the firm, right? A, right. a company that you've got field operations, you've got back office, you've got executive level, administrative, HR, all of that. It's a lot to coordinate. Definitely. What are some of the existing tools or infrastructure or, you know, tried and true strategies that uh, upstream oil companies uh, or, you know, just players in the industry will use to effectively maneuver a merger or an acquisition? Uh, and what are your thoughts there, right, on what works and what doesn't well? So I was actually on a panel recently at a conference with a couple of other folks. Uh, one is a mineral company, one is an operation, an operator. And the consensus we came to is communication across the groups. You know, the people that negotiate the deal often it's not clear like what the TSA period looks like or who's going to be performing what services in this interim time. Getting that as defined as possible is huge. I want to get a little more specific now on kind of how opportune intersects with uh, this, you know, ever-changing dynamic uh, and, and get your thoughts on um, how some of the areas of focus where opportune, you know, uh, hangs its hat might be useful for maneuvering the kind of size and scope of mergers and acquisitions today. So again, you and your team specialize in providing a broad range of M&A services that support the overall integration efforts of uh, the transaction. This includes financial reporting, corporate finance, tax, even IT, HR, yep. operations, right? The list goes on and on. Legal functions as well. Can you, uh, and you kind of already did this, but just with a little more detail, could you briefly lay out what the you know, anatomy, the anatomy of an asset integration looks like. I did air quotes there, but I just realized we're an audio podcast. So we <laughs> Can you lay out what the quote anatomy, unquote, yes. of an asset um, integration looks like um, and what all goes into an asset integration in today's environment, right? And is, is there anything new or unexpected that we should keep in mind? And that's really where you look at the scope of services that Opportune provides as a whole, right? You've got your pre-close where you're doing due diligence, you may bring in the valuation group, you may have the tax advisory group help and figure out like how the legal entity structure should be. Basically getting all of your paperwork done, defining on, uh, deciding on a price and making it to the closing table. So then once you make it to the closing table, it's a, uh, okay, mechanically, how are we going to get these assets from the 
the seller to the buyer. What systems are they coming off of? What systems do they live on going forward? And who is going to be managing them? How would you say those assets and some of their needs or oversights are changing due to the current economic and geopolitical environment? Is it at all, you know, or is that having any kind of outsized influence on the, the bare bones of uh, asset integration or are those things relatively insulated from each other? Not from the bare bones themselves. I think there's more metrics that we're having to capture, particularly mm. related to ESG, but from a true asset transfer from company to company, it's very similar to what it's been. And, you know, naturally all companies that are involved in a merger or an acquisition you know, that are naturally involved in the transaction, they rely on hardware, on software, on a mix of technology platforms to perform those transactions and then to further perform daily operations now under the umbrella of this newly merged or acquired uh, company, you know, as efficiently as possible. So I'm curious what you see as some of the key considerations that companies need to know in terms of selecting the right software and the right tools to help perform the right job in a merger and acquisition project, right? What kind of support, digital support or hardware support, do you think is particularly critical nowadays? And that's where it really gets complicated because a lot of times if it's an acqui either a merger or an acquisition on the field side, a lot of the field folks usually come with the transaction. So you want to minimize change to the guys in the field as much as possible. They've got software is the last thing on their minds. They want to make sure that they're doing things the way they've always done them. Yes, I'm sure there's opportunities to for efficiency gains, but you usually don't want to do that in the middle of a transaction. You do that maybe as a phase two. On a back office perspective, it's always interesting because if you're in you know, a startup, you have no software. So you you basically need to hurry up and do a software selection or decide that you're going to outsource. In the cases of a merger, you then have to say, okay, do we stick with the seller's platforms and convert from buyer to seller or vice versa? And there's a lot that goes into that. And a lot of these systems are priced differently too. And so there's, to cancel your license may cost a lot. So it, there's a lot of variables that can impact the overall economics of the deal. Well, then what strategic advice would you offer for customers to invest thoroughly and thoughtfully in these necessary solutions in a way that reflects their specific needs, but also the needs of the time, right? What are some of the, I guess, main pieces of advice you typically offer your clients? I mean, I always say specifically on the back office, in the field, you know, minimize change as much as possible. You want to make sure that you're going with integrated solutions. You want to make sure that your wells in the field are metered with SCADA meters. You know, when you get to the back office, it's let's make sure that everything is integrated, that it, you aren't going to a platform that has a lot of homegrown IT needs that you have to keep an army of IT folks around to support. Pick a vendor that's actually investing in the products that you're going to be using because Ultimately, beyond the implementation of the software, you have a long-term relationship with that vendor. What are some strategies you may offer for continuously upgrading or improving those solutions? Because I'm sure, you know, there's somewhat of a comfort in that first purchase and integration, right? As much as it is its own, you know, pain in the rear sometimes to make that transition. It's for the better. There is a, you know, a vision for implementation and how to measure ROI. But then down the line, let's say that needs to be replaced or it needs to be upgraded. You know, are there ever any challenges there? And if so, 
what are some pieces of advice that you may offer end users for setting themselves up so that they can continuously upgrade and update and improve their solutions. Well, and that's just a, that's just it, right? The the reason you want to go with a vendor that's actually investing in the products is because hopefully they are upgrading the software right. to make it more efficient, more modern, et cetera, and that you would be incentivized to take those upgrades. Upgrades are not always an easy project in themselves, though. So having somebody that you're a partner with from a vendor and a system implementation side really makes all the difference. What are some things that Opportune tries to do to live up to that kind of role, right? How do you strategically make sure you build those relationships with your clients so that it's second nature for them to reach out when they need to and, you know, to get the kinds of services that they deserve? Yes, I think it's our clients, but it's also our vendors. We need to know what's going on Mm -hmm. with the software. We need to know what the roadmap is. We need to know what makes sense for our clients. And in some cases, even being able to influence that, knowing what our clients' needs are and where they would like to see the product go. And that's where the vendor relationship comes in. You know, we attend the user conferences. We, you know, we sponsor the user conferences. We speak at the user conferences. We do best practice assessments to see what our clients' peers are doing. And that's where really we can say, okay, our clients would like to see the vendor do this with their software. Let us help everybody get there. It's also where we can hear about potential pitfalls and keep clients from hitting those. All right, Byerny, I think that just about does it. Uh, I'll open it up here for any sort of final bits of advice specifically for the customers. I have another kind of final question I want to toss your way about the the macro picture here. But in terms of solutions, in terms of, uh, you know, picking the partner that is going to help you maneuver the right solutions correctly, uh, you know, what are your last pieces of, uh, of advice there? Yeah, I would say pick somebody you trust, particularly with upgrades. It helps to pick the person that helped you do the implementation to begin with. Sometimes that's not always possible, but develop those relationships. And then that macro question I mentioned, uh, broadly, how do you think the current commodity volatility, I guess I'd say, will affect merger and acquisition activity going forward, right? Um, With oil and gas prices fluctuating right now being pretty high here in the U.S., you know, with some of the uncertainty around if there's going to be more oil production or not here in the States. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of that is kind of hard to predict and hard to weigh in yeah. on, but you know, knowing that it is unpredictable is kind of you know, a telltale sign in and of itself. So with that unpredictability sure. in mind, how do you, uh, you know, imagine merger and acquisition activity might continue? And is there any advice you would give for you know, staying grounded and, and maneuvering the, the merger and acquisition side of the sector with all of that uncertainty? Yeah, I mean, people are making more than they've been making for a while, um, but things are also costing more than they've cost in a while. So, yeah, to your point about all the different variables, and I I would say that your guess is as good as mine, but I do think we're going to continue to see an uptick in activity, particularly up from the last couple of years. I think we'll continue to see people trying to consolidate because when they consolidate to a particular area of interest and they're able to get more cost savings by being in the same area, they can use the same vendors, they can... You know, that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, I think that domestic production is, we're not, we're not going to be getting away from it, right? Everybody's calling for energy independence and then we have the capacity to do it. So I think we'll continue to see a lot of movement in the U.S. All right, Byronie, I think with that, we'll go ahead and put a pin in this conversation. Thank you again for joining us, uh, you know, after about yeah, a, a year off. 
you're, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to make sure you get back on the podcast sooner than that next time. But yeah, it's been great getting to chat and pick your brain on the global data uh, Q1 2022 report, but then just more broadly, the state of the current, uh, you know, M&A sector in upstream oil and gas and laying out some strategies for not only how to maneuver that environment, but also pick the right tools and the right partners to support you audience out there if you are going through your own merger or acquisition. So again, Byron E. Cohn, principal at Opportune in the Upstream Transactional Advisory Group. Thank you so much for your time. And if folks want to learn a little bit more about your work, they want to pick your brain on some of this, maybe seek some advice, uh, or they want to reach out to Opportune for support, how can they do so? Where should we point them? Um, the website is the best place. You can find my contact information under process and technology, um, the land accounting and financial reporting. Uh, you can also go to the leadership page, click on my face, and it'll give you a link to, to reach out. Byrony, thank you so much for your time. It's been great and looking forward to chatting again soon. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Of course. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and you want previous episodes, make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you want more information about the company and you want to find out how Opportune can support you in some merger and acquisition activity, make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Thanks so much for tuning in to our 50th episode, and we'll catch you on the 51st episode of E2B. E2B.